You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Take your copy of God's Word and open this morning with me, um, your Bible, and look at Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and while you're turning there, let me just um, prepare us to pray before we get into the Word of God. We've got a number of things we need to pray for. We've got a number of our people that have had surgery this week and are facing surgery this week. Um, Margie Eubanks had uh, very serious surgery down at MD Anderson, came through that surgery extremely well. The surgeon and the doctors are very pleased with what they are seeing out of her. We need to keep her in prayer. Um, I know Miss Carol Crossguard is going to have surgery, I think, um, uh, later this week. And others, Bob Waters, uh, Rob Kaiser, we need to keep in our prayers. I'm going to start mentioning these, and I'm going to forget somebody I know. Uh, We had two young men that lost their fathers this week. Um, uh, uh, Jamie lost his father. His father's service will be here tomorrow, um, the memorial service for his dad, uh, Jamie Cowden. And then Mark Price, Bob Price, passed away, and his service will be here uh, Tuesday as well. So before we get into the Word of God, let's bow our heads and pray for our church family. Father, we thank you that we can call upon you with great assurance that you know our needs, that you know, Father, the needs of those that we're praying for far better than even doctors do. So we lift them up to you. It's our privilege to pray for them. It's... um, It's our joy to lift our brothers and sisters up in Christ and uh, intercede for them and ask, Lord, for your hand to be uh, on them, those that have gone through surgery, those that are facing surgery, those, uh, Father, that have uh, lost loved ones. We're confident that you are the great shepherd and that you are as merciful as your word tells us that you are. And so we pray for them and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. And uh, there'll be no legacy lunch on Tuesday because of the funeral that will be here. Now, Exodus chapter 2, choices, crisis and choices. We, we're faced with choices every single day. We make all kinds of choices, whether to turn right or to turn left or to go through the yellow light or to stop on the, you know, we've got all kinds of choices we make during the course of a day, that never bring about crisis in life. However, every crisis that you face in life will bring about the necessity of a choice. You'll have to make some kind of choice. Now, let me just show you this uh, through Exodus 1 and 2. Pharaoh was faced with what he believed was a crisis of a growing population of Hebrews And the choice he made was slavery and infanticide. 
Uh, it would affect the nation. It would affect people. The choice that he made would affect these people for hundreds of years. Um, not just that, but you come in that first chapter to the two midwives that are named there. They face a crisis, and they make a godly choice. They make a godly decision. And because of that godly decision, it would have an impact on the life of a nation uh, for the centuries to come. Uh, chapter 2, you come to Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and she is faced with a crisis. What am I going to do about my son? I can't let them just kill him. So she was faced with this crisis. She makes a godly decision, and out of that godly decision, it will impact the nation for the rest of time and eternity. So you've got all of these decisions that have been made in the midst of crisis, and this morning you're going to come now to Moses. Moses is going to be faced with a crisis, and out of that crisis, he is going to make a choice that's going to impact his life and the impact the life of the nation as well. Now, if you've got your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 2, if you look at the space between verse 10 and verse 11, 40 years pass. 40 years, just like that. You're going to see another 40 years pass rapidly in uh, chapter 2 into chapter 3, but 40 years pass, and we have absolutely nothing, basically nothing about those 40 years of Moses' life. That's how you know that this book is about God and it's not about Moses. It's, not, it's about God and it's not about the Hebrews. It's about God and it's not about Egypt. Now, we do get a little snippet, and I'm going to show you these. I'm going to move between three passages of Scripture this morning. So it's going to be Exodus chapter 2, and now I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 7. There is a deacon by the name of Stephen, and they're going to stone Stephen. They're going to kill him. They're going to put him to death. Paul is going to be standing there holding the coats of those who pick up the stones to kill him. But before he dies... He gives a history of the Jewish people, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, and he's going to get to the life of Moses. In fact, if you're there now at Acts chapter 7, and by the way, the third passage is going to be over in Hebrews chapter 11. So I'm going to move between Exodus 2, uh, Acts chapter 7, and Hebrews 11. And you need to move with me when I go through these, and you're going to see just a couple of little things that will give you insight into this entire story and the life of Moses. Uh, we know very little about those 40 years except for this. If you look in Acts 7, verse 22, we're told that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Uh, now that is, and I went through some of that last week, he was educated, remember I shared with you, he received an, a, a, a first-rate education of that day. The, the Egyptians were the most advanced culture of their day. Um, the uh, Egyptians were people that were considered to be incredibly wise. They built things in that day and time. We don't know how they built. They did things in that day and time. We don't know how they did it. And the only explanation we've got is that Aliens came down in a spaceship and showed them how to do it. So they were pretty advanced. They were a culture that was clearly very advanced. 
And that's the kind of education that he got. He was trained to be a politician. He was trained to be a statesman. He was trained to be a military leader. He was trained in all of that because Moses very likely could have been up to become Pharaoh. Now, the Egyptians had no qualms with somebody that was a foreigner uh, moving into the position of Pharaoh. It happened numerous times through their history. That was not a big issue that he was a Hebrew. However, you're going to see that's not going to happen, but that's how he was trained. Not only that, but if you look back, you'll see this. He was a man of power. And the word in the New Testament there is dunamis. A lot of times we think the word dynamite comes from that, uh, but it does mean explosive power. It means uh, inherent power. Uh, He was a man of power in words. Now, now that's kind of interesting. Um, It meant that he spoke not only as an educated man, but that he had persuasive power powers of speech, that he could speak and people were moved because of his oratorical ability. Now, that's funny because he's going to turn around and tell God he can't do it. He can't speak. But now, that's coming up. Just keep that tucked away. The third thing that it tells me about him right here is this, uh, and that word power also goes with the word action or deeds. He was a man of powerful deeds. Now, that's a military term. There, is, there are some extra biblical things about Moses. Uh, one of those happens to be that there was a time when Egypt was at war with the Ethiopians, and uh, basically Moses led the army uh, into that kind of battle. He was a man that was trained in military history, military strategy, military tactics. He would have been considered somebody that had gone through the war college uh, here in the United States or trained at West Point. So he was a man of all of these things. And then there's another piece of extra biblical material written by Josephus. Josephus, who was the Jew that helped start the insurrection against the Romans, was captured by the Romans and talked his way out of being put to death and literally became the historian for the Romans um, in their battle with the Jews. And Josephus writes and says that Moses was so handsome that people in the marketplace would stop and stare at him when he passed by, and that laborers would put down their work and would go out and watch Moses just to go by. Now, three times in Scripture we're told he's beautiful. Now Josephus adds that, but now he's 40 years of age. Now, keep your finger in Acts chapter 7 and be ready to go to Hebrews chapter 11 as well. When you come back now, you come to verse 11, and it came about in those days, that is, when he had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labor. That word in the Hebrew, look right there, is the word that means to focus on. He went out and he focused on what was happening to the Hebrews. Now, what he's going to learn is this. He's going to make some choices here, and out of this, it's going to take 40 more years for him to grasp this, but he's going to learn that godly choices exercised by godly character will experience godly blessing. Now, what he's going to learn is that the opposite of that is true as well. 
And that's exactly what you're going to see. You're going to see, you're not going to see godly choices. You're not going to see um, a godly character uh, being acted out. And you're not going to see, honestly, the blessing of God on the choices he makes. Although, let me tell you this. You watch this and take encouragement by it that even when we make very poor decisions in our own strength and our own will, when we yield ourselves to the Lord, he somehow, in some way, brings some good out of the bad choices we made. Okay, let's give the invitation and go home. Y'all should have been listening to that. There should have been more amens than that. Uh, That is an encouragement to us, or it should be an encouragement to us when we blow it. Moses is going to blow it right here. Now, I'm going to show you two things this morning, and uh, we'll wrap this up. But let me show you the first one, and it's this. The first thing that you need to see in this is never underestimate the foundation of godly instruction. Now, I'm going to say that again. Never underestimate uh, the foundation of godly instruction. Now, last week we had a child uh, therapist here. I'm not a child therapist. I'm not a child psychologist. Uh, My kids are in their 30s and 40, 40 and 30s. And uh, I've got 16 grandkids, and the jury is still out on me. Uh, But I'm going to share with you from some godly counsel this morning and out of um, the life of Moses some things that God wants us to see about our children. Never underestimate the foundation of a godly instruction. Now you remember I shared with you that Jochebed had Moses until he was about five, maybe six or seven or even eight. We're not sure, but she had him for that period of time before she gave him back to the daughter of Pharaoh. We're told the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about after those days. Now 40 years pass. He'd been with his mother in those very early days and we're told now back here in Acts chapter 7 that he's going to go out. He's going to go out Uh, at the age of about 40, back in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, but when he was approaching age 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now, the word there in the Greek is literally, it came up in his heart. It's translated, it entered into his mind, but the Greek says it came up into his heart. He had a heart tug here. He had a heart association with these Hebrews. Although he was living in and had been reared in the palace of Pharaoh, at some point along the way in those early days, his mother had told him the story of God and the story of uh, the Hebrews. And she had put that in his head. She had put that in his heart. And it didn't come back to him until he was 40 years of age. Now listen to me, parents. Sometimes it won't happen until they get older. It doesn't happen with Moses until he's 40. And by the way, it doesn't become real clear to him until he's 80. You may be dead and gone, but never discount, never underestimate the impact of the foundation of the Word of God in the life of your child or your grandchild. Well, 
Moses is there, 40 years of age, and it comes up into his heart to go out and look. Now, I want to give you a couple of things at this point. I want to talk about parents and our relationship with our children. Now, I didn't dream this up, and like I said, I'm not a child therapist or psychologist. This comes from Kurt and Olivia uh, 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 Berner, who, are, who wrote a book called Family Compass, and there's some great information in there. Let me tell you about your children and this biblical foundation. Uh, in fact, Kirkwood was talking about this, and he had a daughter and a son that was up here uh, just a few minutes ago. Your child, first of all, you're going to have the ability to imprint on your child. Now, those come, uh, that comes in the early years. You'll be able to imprint on them. They'll listen to everything that you say. They'll follow you around the house like little ducks, you know, they get, they just kind of, you've imprinted on them and they follow you around. They're constantly just jabbering and talking and asking all kinds of questions and whatever you tell them, they accept, they believe. I'll never forget, I think Courtney was around four or five and Trey was around three or four and um, we, I was sitting in a car reading in seminary, Debbie was in Walmart, where else, and um, she was in Walmart, and I've got the little dome light on because it's dark, it's nighttime, and I'm reading a book for class the next day, and somehow Courtney and Trey asked, where, where, where's God? Where's God? And I pointed up, and I kept reading. I've told you this before, and then I didn't hear anything out of them, and I turn around, and I look at them, and they're just looking at the dome light. They think God is in, they'll believe anything you say at that point in their life. You can just imprint on them all kind of stuff. It's a very important age, and you need to understand that age will pass quickly. The second age and stage that they'll go through is this, and that's the impression stage. The imprint stage is gone. The impression stage comes around eight, nine years of age up to about 14 years of age. You can impress on them ideas. You can impress on them thoughts. You can impress on them direction. You can impress on them some influence. But they are more interested in how you live than in what you say. That's why we're losing so many of our middle schoolers and high schoolers. They're checking out in middle school. Long before they get to high school, they still come to church with us. But when they get to college, that's it. They've written it off. And they've written it off because they've never seen a connection between your being in church on Sunday and how you live your life every day of the week. Now, there are two things they're looking from you in this stage where you can impress They're looking for you to define what you believe. Can you define it? Do you know what salvation is? Do you know how to define Christ? Do you know how to define sin? They're looking for you to define your beliefs. And number two, they're looking for you to defend your beliefs. Now, that's why they begin to get argumentative, the little nimrods. They begin, to get, they begin to get argumentative at this age, and they, what they're doing is they're pushing. It's not that they're wanting to be argumentative. It's that they're wanting to hear you defend it because if they're going to accept it, they realize I've got to defend this in some kind of way. This needs to make sense to me. This needs to be something that uh, I can grasp and I can get a hold of 
And, and uh, so, and listen, at this stage, both of my boys, they knew, they thought they could push my buttons, and they thought they would, uh, they would just start in on Calvinism with me. Well, now listen, let me tell you something. You, you keep calm, and you stay in control. When you lose it, you've lost it. Are y'all listening? Now, listen. So they'd come in, and they would argue all this stuff of Calvin. And I was glad. Listen, I was glad they were arguing that instead of homosexuality. Now, I don't mean to be funny with that, but I'm serious. I was thankful this is what they wanted to argue about. So we argued about this, and we argued about music. Well, we didn't argue. They would try to push at me to argue, and I would just debate them. You need to teach them in this age how to debate an idea and not attack a personality. That would be good for this entire country to understand. So you teach them how to think critically, how to think logically by the way you respond to them. They're looking to see, is this real to you? Now the third stage comes at about 15 to 16 years of age. You no longer can imprint them. You no longer can impress on them certain things. You have to begin to coach them. Now you begin to coach. You start to coach, and let me tell you, I've discovered at this point in my life, I'm still coaching my kids. And as long as my dad lived, he still coached me. So until you're dead, you're not going to be done with this whole thing. You've got to coach them along the way. Now, not near as much later in life, but you will still do some of that coaching. And I want to give you a couple of things about this. You're going to move from teacher to coach. Now, listen to this. Number one, understand every coach realizes and knows that they are coaching their player to play the game. I'm coaching these kids to live their life not me to live it for them. You're coaching them to do that. The second thing is this, in coaching them, you realize that your players are going to make mistakes. If they're not making mistakes, they're not doing anything. I can promise you a man who never makes a mistake doesn't ever get up off his blessed assurance. He's not doing anything. Um, you want to see a successful man, you look at a man who has made plenty of mistakes. He's doing something. You just have to understand that the, that the guys and the gals that you are coaching, listen, they're not going to make every right decision the first time. That's why you're there. You're there to coach them. And the second thing about that is you are there to coach them, not straighten out the mistakes. You coach them. You don't step in. Nobody ever went to the sideline last uh, weekend. Yesterday was a week ago when Bryce Young got hurt and said to Nick Saban, you got to go in now and play quarterback. That's not how it works. He's the coach. You don't go in and solve all their problems for them. As a parent, you coach, you motivate, you encourage, you challenge, you advise, you instruct but you don't force feed them. You stand there and you give them the best that you can give them. And through all of this, you put up as a parent, through the imprint, through the impression, through the coaching stages, you put up guardrails. 
You put up guardrails, and let me tell you what they're going to do. Fuss about it. From the time that they're little, you tell them, nope, nope, you can't run out there in that street. And they will throw a fit and stomp around and try to run out there in that street anyway. You tell them, there's a guardrail there. Then you get over here to their 16. Nope, you can't go to that party. And they will stomp and they'll fuss and they'll flounder around. But they'll still come to supper, I bet you. (laughs) They'll still sleep in your house, I bet you. But you put guardrails up. It's not what we do in our house. That's not what we do here. Well, I wish I was born to a different family. Well, sometimes I wish you were too. But the fact of the matter is, God puts you here. I'm the one that has got to coach you through this. And this is, the, this is the rule of the house. This is the rule of the house. So now you say, Pastor, you make it sound easy. No, it's not easy. Never easy. But it's necessary. And you need to think through some of this. And at some point, somewhere, at about 40 years of age, not at 18, not at 20, not at 25, but somewhere around 40 years of age, what Jacobed imprinted and impressed and coached Moses finally came up in his heart. Sometimes you have to wait a while. Now watch this. Now this is where you're going to need really to take your scripture and go with me because I'm going to Hebrews chapter 11. You're going to get a little bit of insight from Hebrews chapter 11. Um, And I'll just begin it in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up. Now we've seen that back here in Exodus 2. We've seen it now in Acts 7. But now in Hebrews 11, by faith, verse 24, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's beginning to make some choices now. And these are the choices that Scripture shows us that he made. I'm not going to be your son. You're not really my parent. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure the ill treatment with the people of God than the passing, than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He begins to understand that my people are slaves. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He saw them being beaten. He saw them working under slave labor conditions. And when he saw one of them treated unjustly, he defeated them and he took vengeance defended him, and he took vengeance on the, uh, for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He's come to the place where he says, listen, uh, I understand who I am. I know what uh, I feel. I know what I've been taught, and I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. And he goes out, and he chooses, I'm not going to be called the, daughter, the son of Pharaoh's daughter any longer. But he chooses now, verse 25, Hebrews 11, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. Now, can you imagine giving up what he gave up? He's living in Pharaoh's palace. He's being groomed possibly to take at least uh, the the runner-up role of Pharaoh, if not Pharaoh himself. He He is choosing to give that up and endure the ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, now you come to a fascinating statement here. And I've got to talk just a little bit about it. 
verse 26 of Hebrews 11, you read, considering, this is Moses, he considers the reproach of Christos, the anointed one. He obviously knew that there was an anointed one to come. And you say, where did he know that from? His mama taught it to him. What did she teach him? Now, keep your finger in Hebrews. Go back now to Exodus and go back one page to the last chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. And in Genesis chapter 50, we went through this this past Wednesday night. If you were here, we talked about the death. We got Joseph. Finally, he died. Uh, It took us a long while to get him there, but he died. Listen to what he says. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you, bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, our father, our grandfather, and our great-grandfather. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. He wanted them to say it. You say it. God's going to take care of us. You shall carry my bones up from from here to over there. You're going to take them over there where God's going to be leading you. Now, watch this, Exodus chapter 13. When they are headed out, I want you to notice what the book of Exodus says in Exodus chapter 13. Look at this, verse 19, Exodus 13 Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Now, this is 400 years later, really about 430 years later, that when Moses goes out of the land, we're told Moses took the bones of Joseph. I shared with them on Wednesday night that sarcophagi of Joseph was never buried in a land that was known. What's it known for today? Tombs. Joseph never had a tomb. He just had a coffin. They never buried the coffin for 400 years. Moses probably saw that coffin uh, all the days that he was there for the 40 years that he grew up there in Egypt. He probably saw the coffin of Joseph. His mother had told him the story. God's coming for his people, and God's going to pick us up from here, and he's going to take us over there. And that box right there contains the bones of Joseph who told us this. And we're to take that box, that sarcophagi, that coffin with us. And it never got out of Moses' mind. And so Moses knows the history. Now watch, because this is just kind of fascinating. Uh, you Go back with me now to Acts chapter 7. He's going to strike down this Egyptian And he supposed, Acts chapter 7, verse 25, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Are y'all with me? Have I lost you? Y'all sitting there looking at me like a calf at a new gate. You you surely, you're with me. Now watch, going back over to Hebrews 11 now, and put all this together in your head. Begin to put this story together. Back over to Hebrews chapter 11, and you're going to read this, considering the reproach of Christ, Christos. Now, I can remember what I read. I can't always remember the book that I read it in. But there is a clear indication among the Old Testament Hebrews 
that God would send a Messiah and that that Messiah would suffer. And when you get to the New Testament, Hebrews, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, elders, they they jettison that. They throw that concept away. But the Old Testament Hebrews understood Messiah would come, Messiah would suffer. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and there are other places you can turn. Listen to what Moses says. Listen to what was going on in Moses' mind. Considering the reproach of Christ. Do you know what reproach means? It means to be ridiculed, to be rejected, to be rebuffed, to be mocked, um, to be disgraced. Considering the disgrace, he knew that the anointed one to come in some way would be rejected, would be disgraced for the greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That in being rejected, he did it in order for a greater treasure. What's that treasure? Us. Us. We're the treasure. So he was looking to the reward. Moses thought, I'll have a far greater treasure than anything the palace of Pharaoh can offer me if I will deliver my people. Do you know what that is a setup for? By the way, this is side commentary. won't cost you a dime. You know what that is a setup for? It's a setup for the 12th chapter of Hebrews when we're told this, for consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's Moses set himself up for all of this same kind of stuff. Uh, And Jesus is going to come, and it's going to be evident that he was reproached by the people as well. Now, Moses thought that his people, Moses thought, I don't even have the time to get to my second point. Moses thought that his people would flock to him because he had saved a Hebrew. Let me just wrap it up this way. He thought that they would come to him. If you go back to Acts chapter 7, you're going to see that the Hebrew who was beating up the other Hebrew and Moses intervenes, tries to peacefully to begin with and then must get a little more aggressive in it that that Hebrew turns around and pushes him, pushes Moses and says, hey, you talking to me? That's a De Niro translation of the, you know, you talking to You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Moses realizes it's all been exposed. Now he goes and he kills that Egyptian. He looks around all over the place and then he buries the guy uh, in the sand. And he goes back the next day and he discovers now the Hebrews all know. And when you come to verse 15, Pharaoh finds out. Pharaoh finds out when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh. He leaves. That's where we'll pick it up next week. But I want, I want you to watch something. Now, here's the choice that he made, and they were, they were very, very poor choices that he made. Very poor choices. None of this God's will. None of this the way God would have done it. None of this like God would have him act. And so God's going to take him now 40 years on the backside of the desert. 
40 more years. If a generation is 20 years, two more generations are going to pass. You know what happens when we make poor choices like that? Other people suffer. These Hebrews are going to have to stay 40 more years, two more generations in slavery before Moses gets his head straight and right. That's why I say, parents, listen, it may take a while. It may take a life. But let me tell you, at 80 years of age, he's going to run up on God, and he's not going to be able to say no to God. Now, let me give you three things when you make a godly choice, and I'll give you these very quickly. When you make this godly choice, you choose, and it's, and it's in the will of God, and what God is going to do with Moses is this. God's going to get him back there, and God is going to empty Moses of Moses. Now, that, where, that may be where you are this morning. That God's got you where you are because he's trying to empty you of you. I've been there. Ain't no fun. I don't want to go back. I can tell you that. But there are times God has to take you to a place where he just empties you of you. The second thing is this. When you begin to make a godly choice, you don't have to look over your shoulder. You make the godly choice. You don't care who's watching, who's looking, who's observing. Moses goes to looking over his shoulder because he's ashamed, honestly, of what he's done. He wants to be sure that nobody has seen what he's done. When you make a godly choice, you, you, let, me, let me just tell you, you don't have to look over your shoulder. Number three, when you make a godly decision, you don't have to bury it anywhere. You don't have to hide it anywhere. And God, when you blow all of that, is still good enough that when he calls you, if you come to him, he's going to use you and bless you. There endeth the lesson. Let's stand. Now, some of you are facing real crisis right now, and you've got choices you've got to make. And the choices are not easy. Let me, let me just remind you that godly choices exercised by godly character will experience godly blessing. You may not see it immediately, but I can promise you something. God honors you when you honor Him with the choices you make. And when you do not make godly choices, let me tell you, he's under no obligation to honor what you've done. Now, you might be here this morning. You've never made the choice to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's who's going to appear to Moses in the next chapter. We'll get there eventually. We're going to get there. But he's here right now. And he's speaking to your heart. And he's speaking to your heart about a choice. And the choice is, will you follow me as Lord and Savior? Will you come and confess your sin and admit that you're a sinner? And will you put your faith, will you place your faith and your trust in me? 
God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And Jesus right now offers you grace and mercy and forgiveness and unending love and kindness. All the things that God has for you. But he will not force it on you. But he does appeal to you. And I appeal to you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Others of you here this morning, you need to come and put your life in the life of this church. You need to be willing to step forward to say, I'm willing to identify with the folks here and with Christ and with this church. And so I invite you to come. Others of you, I have no idea what God is saying. But maybe you need to find your way to an altar right now. Maybe you need to find your way to an altar and pray about the choices that you've got to make. Maybe you need to pray about the crisis that you're facing. Father, in these moments, fall fresh on us. May this be like the first invitation we've ever had so that in this moment we are free from any history to come and make a decision to respond to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed, as Kirkwood Place, would you come? Would you be the first to step out, slip out? As you come, someone else may come. But you come and make the decision that God's calling you to make. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.com.